Welcome back to my podcast listeners. I promised you guys in 2021 we would be doing a lot more podcasts and uh, I do intend to keep my promises. I don't just like to make uh, false promises. So here we are filming episode two already. It's uh, February. So I think it would be a good time to actually introduce a strategy that I just uh, completed uh, not even a week ago. So it's a very simple strategy. Actually, it's nothing. It's not reinventing the wheel. Um, essentially, it's a three fund uh, strategy. So I'm going to break down the strategy, what it entails and how you can apply it in your investing career. And uh, before we do get started, I do want to say uh, this podcast and any part of this show is just going to be my opinions and I share this information for educational purposes. Of course, it is not financial advice. I am not a financial advisor. And if you are not a do-it-yourself investor or if you don't feel comfortable investing on your own, I would highly suggest you contact a fiduciary financial advisor who can help you out. And as always, just remember, uh, there's a risks when it comes to investing. So what is the three fund portfolio strategy? So in more modern terms, uh, a three fund strategy, we can think of something that uh, was probably introduced or made famous by the Bogleheads. The strategy really consisted of owning three broad based funds that were totally uncorrelated. So typically it would be about 60% total US market, 20% uh, total international market, and 20% total U.S. bond market. And this portfolio uh, with this asset allocation was intended as a sort of one-fit-all strategy, meaning that if you're 20 years old or if you're 60 years old, uh, you can utilize this portfolio. Now, of course, you can tweak the asset allocations if you're older and you want to introduce more bonds, absolutely. And if you're younger and you wanted to introduce less bonds, absolutely. But essentially, those three asset classes and, and those three funds would be all you would need. And recently, I've put out a video on M1 Finance sort of introducing my strategy. So I figured it'd be a good time to jump on the podcast and kind of talk about it more in depth and give you guys some of the reasoning of why I decided to go this way. So for about the past six months, I would say I've been doing what I call uh, academic research, uh, backtesting, especially portfolio asset allocation backtesting, um, and then also verifying a strategy uh, that includes small cap value. So I first initially came across the idea of small cap value. Uh, it was honestly by mistake. Um, I had invested in a large cap growth fund here. I actually publicized this on the YouTube channel. The fund was FSPGX. It was the Fidelity Large Cap Growth Fund. And I had a belief, of course, uh, I think that most uh, most investors might have this belief is that large cap growth is probably the only fund that can beat the S&P 500. Now, I want to be very careful when I say beat the S&P 500. And this is where I made the mistake. I added a fund sort of based on recent performance without really thinking about long-term consequences. So in order to sort of solidify my belief in large cap value, I started doing research into different style sectors. You guys see me show you on the channel all those uh, style equity maps. So there's typically nine boxes 
that a certain fund might fall under. It could fall under uh, value, it could fall under growth, or it can fall under blend. And then as far as the size, it can fall under uh, large, it can fall under mid, or it can fall under small. So if you think about it, there's nine possibilities for a fund uh, to be in one of those style sectors. And of course, large cap growth is the top right of that box. So when I compared large cap growth to large cap blend, uh, which is the S&P 500, I was able to go back about 50 years and I found out that large cap growth actually did beat the S&P 500 uh, by about 0.2%. And I was like, yes, this is exactly the information I was looking for. So I was so stoked that I could get a 0.2% increase in performance over 50 years from large cap growth. But instead of discovering this 0.2% performance increase, I had accidentally stumbled across Eugene Fama and Kenneth French. And I read their academic piece that they published in the early 90s about the three-factor model. After I read that, I kind of just sat back and tried to process it and, and try to understand what, you know, fully what those three factors were. Of course, I don't know if you guys already know or not, but I'm going to just go ahead and remind you what the three factors are. So the first factor is stock market risk. This is the easiest factor to prove, like I always say. Stock market risk just means you're going to be paid a higher premium because you're taking on stock market risk. Uh, so if you wanted to see how stock market risk pays a premium, hold $1,000 in cash, hold $1,000 in the stock market. Which do you think over the long term will get you better performance? Probably the $1,000 in the stock market, which generally pays you about 8 to 10%. And the $1,000 in cash generally will pay you somewhere around 3% if we kind of take a look at the long-term performance of government treasury bills. Of course, there's more risk in the stock market. Therefore, in the long term, you do get rewarded with that premium. Very easy to prove. This factor is, again, had no bearing on the creation of this new portfolio. The second one is a size premium. This one I didn't grasp before. So the size premium says that large companies so when you think of large companies you think of large caps are safer than small caps so when you say large caps think of s p 500 think of blue chips companies that have been around a long time when you think of small caps you think of you know small less than two billion dollar market cap companies and of course there's going to be more risk in those smaller companies than there is going to be in the blue chips what i didn't know at the time is you get rewarded for the size premiums. So generally, if you put your money into something that's a little more riskier, so we'll just compare the two blends of the other end of the spectrum. You got large cap blend and small cap blend. So what I found out is that large cap blend performs somewhere around 10.5% uh, per year in that uh, back test that I did from 1972 till now. And small cap blend did 11.89%. That part explained the size premium very quickly to me. And I said, wait a minute. Um, I've been doing this backwards. I've always been putting my money into large cap blend. Um, and I thought that, you know, by stepping out of large cap blend and going into large cap growth, I was gaining a premium, if you will. I didn't know that if I put my money in small caps, I would get this much more of a premium. And then the third factor is the one that opened up the floodgates for all the research and all the back testing. The third factor is value versus growth and this one hit me pretty hard because here i am thinking that growth long term does better than value rookie mistake if you will everything that i back tested everything that i looked at value won in the end 
And it only makes sense when you're picking up value, you're picking up undervalued companies that have good fundamentals. You're getting a discount. Um, if you just think about who the best value investor of our time is, Warren Buffett, how has he beaten the S&P 500 by value investing, not by growth investing? He's done it by value investing. And that kind of set off a light bulb and it said to me, wait a minute, if there's a size premium and there's a value premium, why don't you combine the two? And when I combined the two, I found a little monster called small cap value. So while we said the S&P 500 did 10.5%, uh, large cap growth did 10.7%, small cap blend did 11.89%, small cap value did 13.77% in that same time period. That is a monster when you think about it. To outperform by 3.25% the S&P 500 over a five-year period, that is no small feat. And that's what small cap value did. So right away, I knew I was in the wrong fund. I knew large cap growth was not the fund that I was supposed to be in. So I made the decision to sell out. And I made that public to you guys on the channel. I've, I told you I went bearish on large cap growth. I gave my reasoning why, and I shared a lot of my findings with you uh, in a couple of videos that I just said, you know, uh, large cap growth is is doomed, basically. <laughs> now, I want to be very clear, this was not a market timing decision. I didn't know at the time when I made that decision to get out of large cap growth in September and to get into small cap value. That was actually the perfect time to get in. So initially, and I was very afraid of this, so I, in my public portfolio, I didn't just want to get into small cap value right away. So what I did is I sold out of large cap growth and I stayed sort of quiet uh, for two months until November. But behind the scenes, of course, I'm not just invested in the portfolio that I show you. I have multiple portfolios. Behind the scenes in my HSA account, what I was doing is uh, early September, I was buying large cap value. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable enough sharing that on the channel because I wanted to make sure before I talk about this thing that this is real. I don't want this to be another. I've shown you guys so many strategies. I know I'm always uh, switching up stuff. Uh, that's sort of part of me learning and evolving as an investor. I wouldn't call myself an experienced investor yet. Uh, while I've been investing for about five years now, I think the research that I've been doing in the past year and a half has helped me sort of evolve to where I'm at. Um, made a lot of rookie mistakes, of course, um, and, and still continue to make mistakes. And that, that's just kind of part of the journey. I think it's more fun when we can uh, admit our mistakes. And, and I have a lot of fun actually showing you what I invest in that way. When it is a mistake, uh, you guys can uh, kind of pick me apart too and it helps keep me accountable. But anyways, I didn't want to talk about small cap value on the channel until I knew for sure that, you know, this is the the, the way I was going to go. Uh, so what I did then behind the scenes in my HSA is I bought the uh, Vanguard small cap value index fund. I bought the Admiral shares. Uh, the symbol, if you some of you guys are curious into this, is VSIAX. Uh, so it had an expense ratio of 0.07%, a little bit higher than the Fidelity one. Uh, but if you guys are interested, that is uh, the fund that I got into. Uh, it does have a minimum uh, investment of 3000 Again, unlike the Vanguard one, which is FISVX, that one has a $0 minimum. Uh, when I got into that in September, what got me excited right away is the first 
couple of months, so September and October, I returned somewhere around 14%. And I said, what in the world is this thing? What did I just get into? I've never gotten into a fund previously that did something like that that in a short amount of time, nor would I have ever expected that. Uh, What I didn't know is I was along for an even better ride. Fast forward to November and I said, you know what? I'm comfortable enough and I know how the fund works. I'm going to go ahead and show you guys here on the channel. So that's when I opened up in my taxable first uh, position in FISVX. A couple of months later than I did when my Roth came around in January 1st, I couldn't wait. I deposited right away 500 bucks and and bought FISVX in the Roth. That's sort of the journey of the small cap value transition. Um, Originally, I was comfortable doing 10%. A lot of the stuff that I was back testing, I saw max drawdowns of like negative 56% because of small cap value. that scared me. But then at the same time, when I looked at it, you know, the total U.S. stock market had a drawdown of negative 51%. So it's not like, you know, that that negative 5% is going to be the reason that I panic sell. If I'm already down 50% in the total U.S. stock market and I can stomach that, I'm pretty sure I can stomach another negative 6%. But again, it's very important that you guys understand this. Um, I never make recommendations, first of all, for what you should be invested in uh, for the for the reason that you should invest in whatever keeps you invested long term. And I know it's pretty cliche to say, but it's the, it's the truth. Um, if I tell you to invest in something, but you don't believe in it, but maybe you see my results and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. You're not likely to stick to that long term versus if you come to your own conclusions. And this is why I always challenge you guys to come to your own conclusions Uh, Because I want you to then do your own research and figure out, yes, this is what I should invest in. And the truth is, nobody can really answer that question, like, what should I invest in? Even a financial advisor who might know you really well can make a recommendation, but only you truly know um, what you can invest in and what your risk tolerance is. So it's very important you know this is very risky, this is very volatile, it's not for everybody, right? So now, what I've done is... I like the three fund boglehead strategy. I, I like the total U.S. stock. I like the total U.S. international. I've come around on international. I'll share my points on that a little bit later. And uh, I like the bond. But for me, I'm 31 years old. I don't want any bond. So I'm in the accumulation uh, phase of my investing journey. So that means I work for a living. I have a steady income. And I continue to make money. And I continue to save money. So really, I think for me, bonds all bonds would do is slow down my growth and, and, and slow down the compounding. Bonds do serve a purpose. Um, bonds are very important, in my opinion, in the preservation stage. So if you're someone who's 40 years or older and you have retirement on the horizon, you should really start to think about bonds in your portfolio because then what bonds do is they that max drawdown that I was talking about, negative 56%. Well, when you look at bonds, most of the time, their biggest drawdown could be like negative 14%. So that's a huge difference, right? You're not going to lose 50% of your portfolio if you have bonds in your portfolio. So if you just have a total U.S. stock market, which in the last 50 years has had a drawdown of negative 50%, and you have the total U.S. bond market, which has had a max drawdown of negative 14%, all of a sudden, 
depending on your asset allocations, you might be somewhere in negative 35%, negative 30%. So just understand that, you know, bonds do serve a purpose. But of course, if you're someone who's young, I don't think you have any business being in bonds because you're going to you're going to stunt your future growth. What I've come up with is is two different portfolios. So the first one is for the people that are going to be in the accumulation phase. This is going to be three funds. It's going to consist of the total U.S. stock market. Uh, it's going to have 60% allocated to the total U.S. stock market. Now, these allocations are not set in stone. You can customize these. Um, total international market is going to have 20%. And U.S. small cap value is going to have 20%. So this is for someone who's in the accumulation phase. Um, typically, I would say someone who's a 20-year-old to a 40-year-old. If you fall within this time frame, uh, excluding my fire community people, uh, you guys are a little bit different because you're trying to retire early. So you might have to scale this based off how many years you have left in retirement because for you, you might be taking on the additional risk with the small cap value and not seeing the premium until you're well into your retirement and you're drawing on the portfolio, which could be a big problem. So for you guys, I would probably not recommend you go this route. Um, so anyways, that is going to be the, the portfolio in a nutshell in the accumulation phase. I will have a lot of different videos kind of highlighting ETF versions of the portfolio, mutual funds uh, from Fidelity, even the, even if you wanted to create a zero fund, how you can structure this, what funds you can use, all that good stuff. So make sure you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel. That's where uh, a lot of the visuals, a lot of the funds and a lot of the ideas will be coming from now. This portfolio is not meant as a one-size-fit-all. As I said, if you're 20 to 40, I think it's okay to be in this, minus a few people who might have a shorter time horizon. But if you're, say, 40 to 60 years old, I would say you should really, really consider what you're invested in. So if you do choose to invest in this, that's, again, on your own. Uh, I'm not saying this as a personal recommendation to anybody again i've always told you i don't know you i can't recommend this to you this is what i'm doing um if you want to copy it that's completely up to you uh can't stop you since i'm publishing what i'm doing i can't stop you from doing what you want to do but if you know yourself and you know that you're going to panic just do not do not uh include small cap value i'm just going to tell you that up front uh, because you might panic. So for the preservation phase, 40 to 60 year old, or as you're transitioning, you can do a couple of modified portfolios. So when you think of, you know, those uh, at home workouts, and you know, you got the people doing the push-ups or doing the planks, and they say, you know, if you can't do this quite yet, why don't you modify the workout and maybe do it from your knees or something like that? So here's the modified version. So if you want to tiptoe into this and you still want to keep the bond exposure, uh, if you're someone who's 40, what you can do is you can have 60% total U.S., 20% uh, total international, 10% total bond, U.S. bonds, and 10% small cap value. If you're 40 and you set up a portfolio like that and you have another 25 years to go until retirement, you can still have that great compound annual growth rate that small cap value offers. Now, it could be that the next two decades that you choose to invest in small cap value could be the worst decades small cap value has ever done. That's a, that's a possibility. I'm not going to tell you it's not. So you have to know yourself again. Can you hold it for two decades and watch it underperform the market? Um, sometimes you have to wait a really long time to get the premium. So it could take sometimes 40, 50, 60, 70 years 
to see this premium come to fruition. That's a very long time and for somebody who's 60 years old. And if you're thinking, you know, about passing this portfolio on to either your kids or grandkids or whoever it may be, something to consider um, if you're considering if you're going to be retired and living off this portfolio, I would highly encourage you not to use small cap values to be uh, more in fixed income, to be more in bonds so that you can make sure that your portfolio lasts till the end. So that's going to be the strategy in a nutshell. Um, hopefully, you know, it's a good explanation. I don't know how well sometimes it's difficult to explain stuff on the podcast. I'm more of a visual learner, but hopefully I did a good job breaking that down for you guys. So I want to spend the last couple of minutes here of the podcast talking about something uh, that I wanted to clarify a little bit more as well as expand on a little bit more. So when somebody, a brand new investor, let's say, or a family member or a friend comes up to me and now I'm getting kind of popular because they might know my YouTube channel um, and they say, hey, you know, Moki, I'm looking at starting investing and I keep hearing this S&P 500 thing. How safe is that? Right. And my my answer is always, well, it depends. Right. And I think every question is answered with it depends. And I ramble for 10, 15 minutes and then I say it depends. Um, so it does depend. But Historically speaking, so we have data since basically 1930 to 2020. In those 9-10 year periods or 9 decades, the S&P 500 has returned negative returns twice. We got 9 decades and it's returned a negative return twice. The first time it did it, it did it during 1930 to 1939. That was the Great Depression. That was the start of World War II, and it returned a negative 0.1%. In that same time period, 1930 to 1939, one-month T-bills beat out the S&P 500. That's your short-term bonds. That's basically cash. Long-term government bonds beat out the S&P 500. That typically doesn't happen. So when you hear me talk about the S&P 500, the reason I bring it up is because it's very hard to find decades where it doesn't perform well, where it hasn't made you money. But that is one decade. But it's not the only decade. So there's two, like I told you, in that nine-decade period. The second one happened from 2000 to 2009. And what happened in 2000? The big dot-com bubble. 2001, September 11th happened. 2003, we started the Iraq War. 2008, the Great Financial Recession. The real estate bubble crashing. The S&P 500 in that decade returned negative 0.9%. So these are two periods in time. They're very extreme examples. Most of the time, 1940 to 1949, the S&P returned 9.2%. 1950 to 1959, the S&P 500 returned 19.4%. 1960 to 1969, the S&P 500 and 2010 to 2019, it did 13.6. So there's no uh, guarantee that the S&P 500 will make you money. But 
historically speaking, the odds are in your favor. And that's all we can look at. We can look at historical data and we can say, how likely is this to happen? Now, let me introduce small cap value. So we're looking at the same nine decades, 1930 to 2019. Small cap value only had one decade that it returned a negative return in a decade. Can you guess which one that is? 1930 to 1939. That decade that the S&P 500 had that negative 0.1%, small cap value had a negative 3% return. Since that decade, small cap value has had returns of every other 10-period decade from that decade, starting, starting, of course, from 1940, going to going to 2010 or 2019, ending decade of 2019, small cap value has returned at the very minimum 11%. 1940 to 1949, I told you the S&P did 9.2. In that same year, small cap value did 19.9. 1950 to 1959, S&P did 19.4%, which is amazing. Small cap value beat it. Small cap value did 19.6. 1960 to 1969, S&P 500 did 7.8. Small cap value beat it. It did 14.3. 1970 to 1979, S&P 500 did 5.9%. Small cap value beat it. It did 14.2%. 1980 to 1989, my favorite decade. S&P 500, again, did 17.5%. Small cap value beat it. It did 20.2%. Are you catching my drift? But there is periods where small cap value has underperformed, and it's happened as a recent, and those are the periods I want to focus in. 1990 to 1992, S&P did 18.2%. Small cap value did 16.5%. This is precisely when the Fama and French academic paper was published. Did that academic research paper had anything to do with this performance? It's hard to gauge. It's hard to say yes, it did or no, it didn't. Up until that point, small cap value had been a big secret. It wasn't known public information that small cap value does this well. So of course, when something like this gets published and it's known... Could that affect future returns? Possibly. But then again, if that's so, 2000 to 2009, while while that was one of those periods that the S&P 500 had a negative 0.9% return, small cap value did 12.5%. So wait a minute. If the theory is the Fama and French academic study exposed small cap value and now it's lost all of its premium, then why in 2000 to 2009 was small cap value top of the board again? And then, of course, 2010 to 2019, possibly one of the better bull markets that we've been in in a long time since the early 90s. It did The S&P did 13.6%. Small cap value did 11%. The reason I wanted to share that with you uh, brings up this point. The premium is still, in my opinion, the premium is still there. And we're sort of in a transitional period. Uh, again, I'm not a market timer. I don't know when this transition is going to happen. Maybe we're already in it. I think we're either in it or it's coming up. But again, 
don't listen to me because I'm not a market timer. But there will be a period again where the small cap value outperforms the S&P. And those of us that are in small cap value, whether it's 5%, 10%, 20% in my case, I think will be rewarded with a premium. But it is not something that you should hold for a couple of months or a couple of years or a couple of decades. It's something you should be ready to hold until your last day on earth. And if you can do that, and if you can take on the volatility and stomach the volatility, I'm very confident that you will see the outperformance long term. All right, uh, that's it for my rant. I made this podcast a little bit longer. I think we're going to be going with longer episodes. I like to break down the data going forward. So I'm going to be going into a lot of research stuff, uh, a lot of numbers. So hopefully you guys can follow if you're listening in your car or wherever you're listening. Don't uh, take any notes. But of course, if you're just kind of uh, sitting at your desk or kind of lounging around, I recommend you guys get a notebook and maybe uh, maybe jog down some notes or some ideas you get from the podcast. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast, for supporting the YouTube channel, uh, for supporting my message. I really appreciate all my listeners. I wish you guys well in the future. I wish you well in your investment journeys. And uh, have a great rest of your day, guys. And remember, move obstacles, keep investing.